you ever have any inkling of when you think Jesus might return? You ever had any, any thoughts of, you know, I, I think it might be in this time frame, or I think it might happen in this year. I mean, there are, there are people continually who tell us that they have those kinds of uh, perceptions. You know, it, it's been going on for centuries, ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. People have been declaring, I think it's going to be this day, or I think it's going to be that day, or I think it's going to be this time, or this year. And as we know, all of those have been wrong. But there is something in us that, that really wants to know more about the return of Christ. What, what that means for the world, what that means for us, when that's going to happen, what it's going to look like. And, and we have all kinds of questions about it. And those questions are not bad. Peter, when he is writing this letter, is addressing people who have some of those same questions. They're wondering about when the return of Christ will be and, and, and what that's going to look like. And, and he begins this last chapter as he's finishing the short letter by saying, it's good for you to think about the last days. The issue, though, is you need to be thinking about the last days in the context of what the scriptures have been telling us. And so he begins by saying, it is right and it's good for you to remember what the prophets said and what Christ said to his apostles about those last days. And there's much in the scriptures about it. And he comes back to that, that thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago about developing our Christian memory. J.B. Phillips translates verse 2 as, I'm telling you things that you already know. This is not something new. This is something God has been saying for a long time. I'm just trying to remind you about it. And it's so important for us to continue to develop our Christian memory, but to develop it not out of our own inklings, but out of what the scriptures tell us. When we, when we engage in the scriptures and we think about what the scriptures tell us about the coming of Christ, it, it becomes good for us. Wholesome thinking is what Peter says. And the reason that's so important is because there are always people who want to turn us away from the central point of the coming of Christ. There are always people that, that want to twist and turn the truths about the return of Christ and, and lead us away from what is most vital and most central. And that seems to be exactly what's happening as Peter writes this letter. There, there are false teachers that he's been referring to throughout these, these short chapters who have come into this, this congregation of Christians and, and have said to them, so you've been talking about Christ returning for a long time. Where is he? Where is this coming of Christ? Doesn't seem to me like anything in the world has changed. The Romans are still in power. You're still being oppressed. Christians are still being persecuted. The, the people who have the wealth and the power are still running things. Doesn't look to me like God's doing anything. Doesn't look to me like anything has changed. So what's up? This question reminds me of, of what the, uh, the prophet Malachi writes in the second chapter of his prophecy. Where he says to the people, you're wearying the Lord with your words. And the people say, how are we wearying the Lord? And he said, by saying that 
that evil is good and it pleases God. And then you ask the question, where is the God of justice? And they're not asking that question out of a sincere desire to know more about God. It's It's a question of accusation. So where is this God of justice you talk about? Doesn't look to me like he's doing anything. Doesn't look to me like God is doing anything just in this world. I think it's craziness. And these false teachers, these skeptics, are using the delay of Christ to undermine the Christian's, the Christian's understanding and, and belief in the promises of God. They're trying to, to convince them that God's promises really aren't true. That God really isn't faithful to his word. And we have people all the time who are telling us that. People who are saying, let's look to me like anything has changed in our world. So tell me, what exactly is Christ's presence here mean for us? How are things any different? And we look around and, and honestly, something in us says, well, they don't really look all that much different. And, and it just begins to, to, to edge away our, our faith in God. And to erode just a little bit our ability to trust. Because we're thinking, Lord, why haven't you come back? Why aren't you revealing yourself? Why aren't you doing what... You said you would do. And every moment Christ delays, there is the temptation to wonder, is it really going to happen? Is God really going to keep his promise? Is he really faithful to his word? So Peter says, well, let me just remind you of something. Let's go back to way back to the beginning. And Peter Peter loves referring back to the Old Testament and especially he He seems enamored with the flood. That's the second time in this really short letter he's gone back to the flood. And he says, let me remind you about something that, remember God said that if things don't change, I'm going to have to do something about it. Let's go back to Genesis 6 and remember how God flooded the earth. And the same God who flooded the earth keeps his promises. And he's going to hold people accountable He does what he says. Now, we don't really know. You go back to that story of Noah and the flood. We have no idea, but no details about how long it takes Noah to build the ark. We have no details about, you know, any kinds of of interactions he has with his neighbors. Now, you know, if you've had the opportunity to listen to Bill Cosby's take on this story, you, you remember some of the things that he thought might be taking place. You know, I was just listening to that this week, you know, then... Oh, Noah's building the ark and the neighbor comes out and he says, what is that? He says, it's an ark. He said, well, get it out of my driveway. I got to go to work. And, uh, you know, and, you know, we don't know about those interactions, but I do think that in some form, because it fits the character and the nature of God, that, that Noah warns people. And, and, and Noah tells people, you need to change and some, the, the destruction is coming and, and you, can, you can join me in this. And they refuse. And I suspect that, you know, it takes Noah probably a number of years to build that massive ark. And during that time, you know he has to endure a lot of ridicule and scorn and mocking. What are you doing, Noah? This is ridiculous. And I'm sure there were days where he got up and thought, why should I work on this today? This is taking so long. This is ridiculous. What's the point? 
And then he remembers the word of the Lord and keeps working. And that the delays are difficult. And I know Peter is, is talking here about the coming of Christ on that day, but the delays are hard every day. There's stuff that we go through where we're praying to God, we're pouring our hearts out to God, asking him to, to work and to interact. And the God, we believe he can because this is the God who has shown himself over and over again that he will interact into history. And he will change things and he, and he will bring about a different result because he, he intersects history. And we're praying for God to do that. And all we get is silence. Lord, this situation at work needs to change. How come it's not? This relationship needs to get better. Why isn't it? This, this struggle that, that our family's having needs to be answered. Why isn't it being answered? And the delays have a tendency to, to tempt us to let our faith be eroded. And we worry and doubt can creep into our minds about whether God truly keeps his promises or not. And in those moments, we remember that our God doesn't delay because of weakness. He delays because he's patient with us and he loves us. Peter has an interesting thing to say here about God's time. He says, beginning in verse 8, that the God, God's time is not our time. You know, we want God's time to be ours. You know, we're not really interested in shaping, letting our time be shaped into the image of God's time. We want God's time to be shaped into our time. Our impatience keeps coming up. And Peter says, look... I know it's hard because we don't see it from this side of eternity, but God can be trusted because his timing is perfect. And every time I read this verse, I, I think about the, the uh, story I read that obviously is apocryphal of a guy who was praying to God and he said, Lord, is it true that to you a, a penny's like a million dollars and, and a second's like eternity? And he said, that's true. He said, well, can I have a penny? And the Lord said, sure, just a second. <laughs> you know, we, we want God's time to be ours and it's hard to wait. But as Peter says, the waiting and the delay is not because God is weak. It's not because God can't really control the world. It's not because God is, is upset with us. It's because God is patient and loving and kind. And in the wider scope of things, he delays because he wants more and more people to know about the grace of uh, his grace in Christ. And we've seen God do this over and over again. You go back to the Old Testament and it tells us that the reason the Israelites were 400 years in slavery was because God was giving the people of Canaan 400 years to repent. And to turn from their sins. And God, God wanted to give them every opportunity possible to do that. Even though it meant his people might suffer. And so we think about God's delays. 
They're not about God ignoring us, God being apathetic toward our problems. It's God's grace, his patient love. Because here's the truth. We learn more about God and we grow more in our faith with God through difficult times than through the times when life is easy. I don't like that. I wish that weren't the case, but I know it's true. In those moments, we are faced with a decision. We're going to trust God in his timing or are we going to give up and just go our own way? The scriptures tell us that if we trust him and his time and his way, we begin to develop a new heart and a new spirit and a new understanding of who he is and our relationship with him. I think that's why then in verse 10, Peter talks about the, the fact that Christ will come like a thief in the night. He's going to come in a way that surprises us. He doesn't tell us the day and the time. Because human nature is, if he told us the day and the time, if he said, I'm going to return on October 17th, 2013. Far too many human beings would say, I'll wait till October 12th, 2013 to do anything about it. And not only do we, we delay and risk, but more than that, we, we miss out on the opportunity to live life in the grace and the presence of Christ now. Our relationship with Christ is not just about fire insurance to get us into heaven. It's about living in, in, the, in the blessing and the grace and the presence of Jesus now. Eternal life doesn't begin at some when we die or when, when Christ returns. It begins now. Eternal life is in us now if we're in Christ. And the life and the, that he brings to us and the joy and the grace that we can live in now, even with our problems, even with all the difficulties, and even with the struggles, in the midst of that, we can know something more in Christ now. And his surprise coming is one more reason to say, I want to be ready. I want to be prepared. Because I want to know the grace of Christ in my life right now. And the question that we often ask, we're often asking when, we're often asking how about the return of Christ. But, but really the question is really is just being ready now. And so Peter says, beginning in verse 11, so what do we do? If we're we're supposed to be prepared, if we're supposed to be ready, if we never know when Christ is going to come, if he delays and delays in such a way that we can never be sure, he's going to come like a thief in the night, and all of these, these negative voices are coming at us to try to turn us away, how do we make sure that we're ready? He says, live godly and holy lives. I don't know about you, but that, that's sort of intimidating to me. To think of being ready means living a godly and holy life. Because when we think about holy, we think about Jesus. We think about perfection. I don't think that's what he means. And yet, the scriptures tell us again and again, this is God's command. He tells the Israelites, be holy because I'm holy. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Be holy, Peter has said in his first letter to the, to the Christians. And I think by holiness, it, it's more an attitude of our hearts. It's, it's a surrender of our being to him than it is about being perfect. 
It's the yearning. It's the desire of our hearts. John Wesley used to talk about holiness being what he described as perfect love. And again, that, the word perfect sort of scares us a bit because it means absoluteness. Maybe it's what the King James uses. Someone said to me a number of years ago, maybe it would be better to use the word wholehearted. That to be holy means to live with wholehearted love toward God and toward one another. That the yearning of our heart is for Christ and to grow in Christ and to know Christ and to surrender our being to Christ. So he says, live holy and godly lives. Connection with that, he says, live with the sense of righteousness that will be a part of the new heaven and the new earth. When Jesus prays, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I think a a big part of what he's saying is, Lord, help us to live, Father, help us to live in this world with the kingdom principles of your eternal world. Help us to want for our lives and for this earth the same things that are going to be central to your kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. And the new heaven and the new earth are going to be about justice and about, and about loving and caring. They're going to be the heart of Christ. Whatever we see in Christ, that's, those are kingdom principles. And that righteousness where everything will be perfect and everything will be about doing the things that God wants people to do. And that's the yearning of our hearts here. When I think about the new heaven and new earth, my mind went back to, to uh, what Isaiah writes in his prophecy. He says, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Jesus says to his disciples... On that Thursday night before he goes to the cross the next day. Here's my command to you. Love one another. This is how people will know you're my disciples. If you love one another. If you want to put in a nutshell the, what the kingdom is about. It's about loving God and loving others. And that will be the focus. That will be the heart of the kingdom of righteousness in the new heaven and the new earth. And if we want to prepare for that, we start wanting that now in our lives. He also talks about being spotless and blameless and at peace. This is about relationships. And all of this is really just sort of walking around the same diamond. Talking about relationships and and caring about people and being at peace with people and being a person of reconciliation. That we want to be reconciled with God, but we also want to help other people be reconciled with God. And we want to be reconciled with other people. And so we're always thinking about how we can love God and how we can love other people. And he talks about being patient. 
as he is patient with us. That we're willing to let God delay in his coming, even though that means we might suffer a little bit more. We might struggle in this life a little bit more. But we're willing to do that because it means more people might come to know Christ. More people might come to live in the joy and the grace of Christ. And our hearts are so turned to loving people that we're willing to sacrifice so that they might know and hear. Peter wants us to have that kind of mindset, that spirit of Christ, and that's how we prepare. That we are eagerly anticipating the coming of Christ, but willing to wait for his time and his way. It's important for us to be prepared because there are always people who are wanting to deceive And to turn our attention away from Christ and what's central. I think even even the the people who want to focus on when Christ is going to return are shifting the focus away from what's most important to something that's quite peripheral. And as he says here, there are people who are always willing to twist the scriptures. Even someone like Paul, someone in authority, twisting the scriptures... And trying to convince us that it's not true. And he says, be careful because every one of us is susceptible to being deceived and falling. And as we talked last week, we may have different opinions about exactly what that means. And the security of the believers, because scripture tells us both things. But at the very least, Peter's warning is, be careful. Be alert. Be aware. Because the evil one is always wanting to deceive us. And the way to to combat that, the best strategy for not being deceived is continuing to grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be focused on him, that our mind, our heart, our spirits, everything about our being, what's most important to us is Christ. And as much as we want to experience the joy and the blessing of heaven... While we're here, it's about Christ. It's about wanting what he wants. It's about continually asking him to push the stuff of this world to the periphery so that our focus and our direction is on him. When you come to the last phrase of the letter, where he talks about giving glory to Christ now and forever, it seems to me that the sign of of spiritual maturity, the sign that that we are making progress is that we begin to think of living our lives for one purpose, and that is to bring glory to Christ. And that we begin to shift from, even from what Christ is going to do for us, as wonderful as that is, to just thinking about how our lives, how our words, our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes can bring glory to Christ. When we get to heaven, that will be the focus. When we get to heaven, it will all be, it'll be all about Christ. It'll be about worshiping Christ and adoring Christ and laying down everything we have before Christ. And but what better way to prepare for that day than to desire to live that way this day.
You know, when I, when I was, I don't know, junior high, I guess, something like that, I remember at church, some of you may remember this, watching the movie A Thief in the Night. You guys remember that movie? Scared the bejeebies out of me, man. You know, I, I, like I said, I was probably junior high, and I saw it again when I was in seminary. It scared me to death then, too. I think that was probably the goal of the movie. I think it, the intention was to try to scare people out of hell and into heaven. And, and you know, the, the, I remember you know, just all kinds of scenes from that. But I, I vividly remember, not too long after seeing that movie, coming home from baseball practice one early evening and walking into the house and expecting everyone to be there and no one was home. <laughs> Panic, freak out, I'm just telling you. You know, it's... And, and you live with this fear for so long. But you know, lately, I've, as I've been reading through the New Testament, what I find is that when the writers of the New Testament talk about the coming of Christ, most of the time, it's not about fear. It's about hope. It's about celebration. It's about joy. It's about entering into the fullness of life with our Savior. And I'm convinced that that's what God wants for us, not just then, but now. We don't know when the day will come. We don't know why God delays. But while we wait, what's the focus of our attention? What's the focus of our heart? What do we desire most as we live in this world? I'd like for you to join me in response in praying together a prayer of confession as we pour out our hearts to God together recognizing our sins and asking him to refocus us and to reset us on him. Let's pray together. I think you have it on the screen. No? All right. Merciful God, you pardon all who truly repent and turn to you. We humbly confess our sins And ask for your mercy. We've not loved you with a pure heart. Nor have we loved our neighbors as ourselves. We've not done justice. Or loved kindness. Or walked humbly with you. Our God. Have mercy on us. Lord. In your loving kindness, in your great compassion, cleanse us from our sin. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us, but restore to us the joy of your salvation and sustain us with your bountiful spirit. Amen.